You are listening to Law and Gospel on this September the 10th in the year of our Lord, 2021. I'm Pastor Tom Baker, and part of the problem that we're having is with my microphone, so I'm doing this over the phone, so my voice may be a little off. But on Open Mic Fridays, what we attempt to do is reply to emails that have been sent to us. This one I got yesterday. Pastor, does the scriptures explicitly speak to the plight of the needy? Are those remedies promises for a future in heaven? Or can they look for an aspect of abundance in the here and now? Well, Jesus himself says, that you will always have the poor with you. That that occurs when Mary anoints Jesus for his burial and puts that expensive perfume on him. And, of course, Judas and others say, well, that's terrible. We could have given that to the poor. And Jesus says, no, you always have the poor with you. Also, in the one of the epistles, read this recently, James talks about what kind of Christian are you when a rich person walks into the church and you are really nice to him, but when a poor person walks in, you are not as nice and welcoming. And you should be welcoming to the poor as much as to the rich. So, there's no doubt that Christians are to help out with the poor. And that's done, by the way, even through the church. In the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, we spend a lot of funding that comes in to help in disastrous situations. Right now, we're working in Haiti after a terrible storm had occurred there. And we go to places where tornadoes, hurricanes, etc. take place. So there's no doubt that there are remedies for the poor and those who are in catastrophic experiences. But Does that mean, if I'm reading the question rightly, that when we help remedy that, that's a promise for a future in heaven? No, there's nothing you do that can guarantee a promise of a future in heaven. In fact, two people may be giving food to the needy. The unbeliever does it out of selfish reasons, according to Scripture. The believer can do it moved by the Holy Spirit received at baptism. So the one is not considered a good work, whereas the other is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Question two, is it an ecclesiastical truth that the needy will always be with us from the perspective of the church today. 
And the answer to that is, yes, the needy will always be with us because we live in a fallen world. No matter how much the secular state can do or the church can do, there will always be the needy. So, question three, is it proper for congregations, ecclesiastical conferences, or synodical bodies to declare a doctrinal righteousness that never forgets the spiritual poverty and need for reparations that will atone and restore the needy? Well, I don't believe that there is such a thing as reparations for the needy. There is help. I was in a congregation for 28 years when a number of people were being helped by the government who I would consider to be needy. And therefore, that is the route that should be done. And I hope that people will understand that. So that's one email. We we get some pretty good emails from people, issues, etc. say they have the best people addressing them because they're so wise. Well, we've got some wise people on law and gospel. Here's what Bill wrote. God loves you because of who God is, not because of anything you did or didn't do. Now, that's really a good statement. We don't know the reason why God has chosen to love us, but it's clear he loves every person. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, and not because of anything you did or didn't do. Now you're saying, how can he love an unbeliever? Well, you see, our love, human love, a lot of times is based on what we get from someone. And so we would say, well, why would God love an unbeliever when he's not getting praise and honor from an unbeliever. Well, it's like parents whose son is arrested maybe for dealing with drugs. Those parents will be in court with him, visit him in jail, and really try and help him out because of their love, even though he has really, well, become a criminal. So, yes, love can be done by parents to a criminal son or daughter. Love is done by God to everyone, whether they're a believer or an unbeliever. All right. Next, dear Mr. Baker, I was listening to your radio broadcast when you were talking about a particular sermon. During your program, you drew the distinction between a non-believer 
helping a person with a bag of groceries and the same action by a believer. I believe you said that the unbeliever will be rewarded temporarily by God for helping. But because he is an unbeliever, his motivation can only be out of self-interest. During a recent Bible study at my church, the pastor said that when an unbeliever does an outwardly good work, God sees, I'm sorry, when a believer does an outwardly good work, God sees the work of Jesus. But when a non-believer does an outwardly good work, God sees only sin. Would you please clarify why God would reward sin, even if temporarily? Or would you disagree that God sees only sin when a non-believer does an outwardly good work? I appreciate your thoughts regarding this. I enjoy your program and always feel I'm learning more and more by listening. Okay. Here we talk about the two kingdoms. It's very clear that there is a temporal or secular kingdom, and that's where people are elected to office and where citizens obey the laws of the land. Now, if you obey the laws of the land, let's say driving, and you don't go over the speed limit, you will not be pulled over by the police. That is a reward that you get, whether believer or unbeliever, for helping out the police. Uh, In fact, last night on our way back from a church that we had preached at, it was around 10 p.m., and we were entering into St. Louis, and all of a sudden, two police cars went by us very, very quickly with their lights and sirens on. And I kind of figured something would happen because a few minutes before, a car went by us about 80 or 90 miles an hour on the expressway. And they were chasing him. And it appeared that they caught him because he took an exit and they both went down the exit and confronted him. We didn't see anything that happened after that. But we went on our way with the reward of not being stopped because we were obeying the speed limit. So there's no doubt that when we say the word reward, that doesn't mean that that's on account of what you are doing and God rewards you. But it is on account of whether you are obedient to the secular laws of the land. Imagine if you don't pay your income tax. Guess what? You're going to have the IRS coming after you. And so there are rewards that even unbelievers receive, not because of what they are doing so much, but because because of how they are obedient to the laws of the land. And the reward of the believer is, of of course, eternal life. But that's not because 
of the good work the believer is doing, but because of the good work that Jesus Christ has done, including declaring the believer as righteous in his sight. Okay, Pastor Baker, my husband and I were married in a church that allowed a female pastor who married us. Since then, we've become members of an LCMS church. Should we consider our marriage valid in God's eyes? Your response would be appreciated. Thank you. Now, there are some real problems, of course, with female pastors, because, of course, they don't believe the Bible. And the main thing they don't believe is that males only should be pastors. I'm not interested why God made that decision, but that's the decision he made all the way back in Genesis, where the male has authority over the female. And that authority is to be God's authority. So, you get married by a female pastor. Unlike the Roman Catholic Church, which believes that marriage is a sacrament, we in the Lutheran Church believe that marriage is part of the secular world. And it really doesn't matter who marries you. Some people get married in Las Vegas, and they're maybe married by a judge or someone like that. They may not even know the religion of the person. But the marriage is a contract in the area of the secular world. Then you ask, well, why get married in a church? Well, the purpose of getting married in a church is to give a witness that your marriage will also include a third individual, and that's Jesus Christ. So it's actually an act of worship. So it doesn't matter what religion or what gender is the person who marries you, because there are female judges that marry individuals. When I was in Novosibirsk, Russia, for a few weeks, teaching law and gospel, one of the seminarians, he got married. And he and his wife had to go, at that time, to the government. And there was a woman who conducted the marriage ceremony. There was no mention of God, no mention of Jesus, of course, but just the fact that they would be true to one another, and she was a communist. So they were considered married because that's the way that marriage occurred by God in those particular countries. So, next email. We appreciate your efforts to dumb down the message so you don't leave your listeners in the dust, Pastor. Truly, this is not meant sarcastically. However, remember that you also have a number of well-educated from Lutheran school listeners, older listeners, 
with truly broad vocabularies, and those of us who hope to continue to learn about the scriptures all of our lives. I learn from you, no matter what level your specific message may be. Bless your sinful heart as faithful preachers of the true word are in short supply. Now, there's no doubt that I believe one of my gifts is to take complex theological truths and, as the letter says, dumb them down. It's kind of like what a physician does. You get an examination, and he has really big words that he could use for your problems, but he dumbs them down to explain, like, for example, well, uh, the reason that this is happening is because of a kidney failure and there was some kind of virus and we had to get rid of that. Now, I, I don't know all the ingredients of the medicine they use to get rid of a virus, but they did it. That's kind of dumbing it down. If I was uh, another doctor, I might have an explanation of that. But dumbing down doesn't mean that the people are dumb. It simply means you're trying to get across a complex understanding at a simpler level. It's what pastors do all the time when they're teaching youth confirmation. You don't start off was saying, well, do you understand the Trinity? Because nobody does. And the teaching of the Trinity gets pretty, pretty complex, especially when we're talking about the attributes of God that Jesus did not always use in his state of humiliation until his state of exaltation. So, I make a distinction between academic theology, and that's what I am taught at the seminary, the complexity of it, and everyday theology. A lot of everyday theology is contrary to the Bible, and that's the purpose of a sermon. In other words, to bring the everyday theology to the forefront so you realize that's not scripture and replace it with what we call academic or biblical theology. That's what every sermon should do, in my opinion. In other words, you hear something you've never heard before and you enjoy it. So, because we have such a variety of people listening to law and gospel. Some of them are brand new Christians. Some of them are brand new Lutherans. Some of them have been Lutheran teachers. And some of them are Lutheran pastors. So we try and teach in such a way that each one of them finds something interesting, which, of course, occurs with the next email. I notice that you are supportive of infant baptism. Why do you believe this when the Bible clearly says 
repent and be baptized. God's order is to believe and repent first and then be baptized. Babies don't have the knowledge that they are to repent. There were men who came to John the Baptist to be baptized. And in so many words, John lets them know that their hearts were not right in the right condition for baptism. This is one of the things that convinced me that I must be baptized after I became a true believer in Jesus Christ. I had to let go of my Roman Catholic belief and really realized that my baptism as a baby was no baptism at all and not valid in the eyes of God. The Bible warns us about the traditions of men, Colossians 2.8. And then he quotes, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. It also says that there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. Well, I don't uh, disagree that false teaching can lead to eternal death. But when you say, and this is a key word that baptism was no baptism at all and not valid in the eyes of God. Well, you see, we believe that all Scripture is from God, inspired by the Holy Spirit. So here we go to Pentecost. And Peter has preached about how they have killed the Messiah. And they say, what can we do? Notice he says, repent and be baptized. But then he goes on and says, and you will receive two gifts, the gift of the remission of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then he further goes on and says, And the promise is to you and to your infants and also to the Gentiles. Well, that's God's word. So how do we understand that repentance and faith occurs even in a baby in baptism? Because baptism is a holy sacrament, which means... It's the way in which God delivers his salvation. He did that in the Lord's Supper by giving us the true body and blood of Jesus Christ. He does it in baptism. How? By even giving an infant repentance and faith. Now, you say, how's that possible? Infants can't understand. Well, remember, there was an infant who wasn't born yet. His name was John the Baptist. And he received the gift of the Holy Spirit 
within the womb of Elizabeth. How do we know that? Because when the mother of Jesus, Mary, came to visit Elizabeth, the baby John the baptizer leaped in her womb for joy. Now, how could he do that? How can the Bible say he had joy if he has no understanding of what's going on? Because the Holy Spirit can bring faith even to a child who is not yet born, let alone those who are born. In fact, as a pastor, I visited a lot of new mothers who were in the hospital just getting ready to go home with their baby. And it did not take them long before they realized that their newborn baby trusted them. They fed them, they coddled them, they hugged them, they spoke to them, and it was clear that the baby did not turn away from the mother, but enjoyed what he or she was experiencing. So if a newborn baby can trust the mother, by the power of the Holy Spirit, they also can trust Jesus. And it's not at all unusual that we find that children grow up, newborn babies, and are taught to pray to Jesus. They do pray to Jesus, thanking Him for food and many other things. Okay, you can get a hold of me by emailing me, and I might respond to your email next Friday. Until Monday's Law and Gospel, God bless you. Listen to Law and Gospel each weekday morning at 9.30 on KFUO. For a tax-deductible gift to Law and Gospel, please make your check payable to Concordia Mission Society and mail it to Tom Baker, P.O. Box 28910, St. Louis, Missouri, 63132. To give online, visit lawandgospel101.com or call toll-free 1-877-267-1962. Views and opinions expressed on Worldwide KFUO may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. If you'd like to comment on programs or topics heard on Worldwide KFUO, write us at KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can also leave a question or comment on our comment line at 314-996-1542. We are the messenger of good news, Worldwide KFUO.